0: Warning, this video is based on a true story. While there are no graphic pictures, the following video describes physical abuse, kidnapping, assault, and murder, which may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. It's high school graduation, one of the greatest days in any student's life. It's June, 1992, And two graduates, Susie Streeter and Stacy McCall, have just graduated from the local Kickapoo High School in Springfield, Missouri. They would go about their evening hitting a couple of graduation parties around town. They would return home late, late that night to find Susie's mother asleep, having nodded off, leaving the TV in her bedroom on. It's well past 2 a.m., and the girls slip out of their clothes and get ready for bed. They plan to get up early the next morning and head to Whitewater, a water park an hour south in a town called Branson, Missouri. But they would never make it there, because at some point between bedtime and 7 a.m., all three of these ladies would simply vanish. And within 24 hours, the three would be reported missing, The home would become a crime scene, and the whole town would start frantically looking for these ladies. Where were they, and who could do such a thing? Well, we're going to talk about that, because it still remains a mystery some 30 years later. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we are going to take a look at the disappearance of the Springfield Three. And this video is another video that hits close to home as it happened in Springfield, Missouri, where I was living and attending college at the time. So we're going to look at the facts. We're going to look at the evidence, and we're going to view some actual crime scene photographs. We are going to discuss what is known, what is unknown, and then we're going to look at potential suspects. In doing so, we will examine the potential whereabouts of these ladies. And finally, we will look at the various theories about what happened. And ultimately, I'm gonna give you my opinion as to the theory that makes the most sense about who was involved and where these women might be today. All in today's episode. If you like the episode, smash that like button for me. If you got something to say, you got a comment, put it in the comment section below. And if you haven't subscribed to the channel, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell so that you're notified every time Lawyer Up uploads. So come with me to Springfield, Missouri, which is the home of Bass Pro Shops and Springfield style cashew chicken. It's 1992 and Springfield boasts a population of about 140,000 people. It's not a small town, but it has a small town feel because it's safe and has an extremely low crime rate. So let's talk about three of its citizens. Cheryl Elizabeth Levitt, age 47 at the time, was a single mother to a Bart and a Susie Streeter, Levitt was twice divorced and had originally moved to Springfield from Seattle in 1980 to make a new start in the Midwest. She and Susie were close, but the relationship with Bart was volatile. Levitt was a hairdresser by trade and well liked in the community. She had just moved to 1717 East Delmar Street in the spring of 1992. And in her spare time, she was fixing up the home and refinishing and repainting some old furniture. In fact, on the night in question, she had returned home to do some wallpapering after the graduation ceremonies. Her daughter, Suzanne E. Streeter, Susie, lived with her on Del Mar and attended Kickapoo High School. She was 19 at the time, an extrovert that sported bleach blonde hair and brown eyes. She drove a little red car with personalized plates that read Sweeter. She was employed at a local theater, but planned to attend beauty school and be a hairdresser like her mother. Her close friend, Stacey McCall, also lived in Springfield with her parents, Stu and Janice McCall. She was 18, also having a little red car, and was working at a local gym with plans to attend Southwest Missouri State University. SMS in the fall of that year. And so there they were sitting in Hammond Student Center on the campus of SMS. It's Saturday, June 6th, 1992, 4 p.m., and graduation was starting. Stacy and Susie in their cap and gown, Levitt in her floral pattern dress. Graduation would end about 6 p.m., with Cheryl telling friends that she was headed home to do some wallpapering around the house. And the girls, diplomas in hand, planned to hit some graduation parties that evening and had plans to go with friends to Whitewater water Park in Branson, Missouri, the next morning. And so the two girls left graduation with their entire lives ahead of them. Stacy went home and had dinner with her family, including photographs in her cap and gown in the backyard. Susie would go home with Cheryl to pack her clothes for the evening and the next day's adventures. Both girls in their separate vehicles then headed to the town of Battlefield, Missouri, a little suburb of Springfield. They met at a friend's house, Janelle Kirby, and then walked to a nearby party at the house of a kid named Brian Joy. Brian's parents were out of town that weekend, so it was the perfect place to celebrate and have a graduation party. Meanwhile, it's 9 30 p.m. Cheryl Levitt talks with a friend on the telephone. Levitt tells the friend that she's been stripping a chair and hanging wallpaper border in her new home on 1717 East Del Mar. Now note, some reports have this call happening a little later in the evening, closer to 11 p.m. Back to the girls, they would stay at Brian's party until about 10.30 p.m. when Stacy would call her mom and say that they were going to stay the night at Janelle's in Battlefield and that she would catch up with her mom in the morning. From there, Stacy and Susie leave Battlefield and head to the 1500 block of East Hanover Street in Springfield to attend a graduation party with friends that they had from Kickapoo. They would leave their friend Janelle in Battlefield at Brian Joy's party. Now, once in Springfield, They would then celebrate into the night until about 1.30 a.m. when police would descend upon the party and break it up. So Susie and Stacy would head back to Battlefield. But by the time they got there, the town was quiet. They go to Janelle's house only to find it full of party revelers who had crashed there after the party. So they tried Brian Joy's house. But it was after 2 a.m., when they knocked on his door and it woke him up. And in his own words, Brian would say, I was asleep and I was a little pissed off. And I told him they couldn't stay. So, with nowhere to stay, the girls decided to head back to Springfield. And this is one place where these stories diverge again. In reports, police state that they believe the girls arrived back at the Del Mar address around 2:30 a.m. Others say they went to George's Steakhouse, which is an all-night diner in town, famous for being an after-bar hangout for people who want to get some food and sober up. A server would say that the girls were there between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m. before they headed back to Susie's home, which was a short distance away. Regardless of the exact time, they walk in the door. Cheryl Levitt is asleep in her bedroom. TV is still on. And the girls leave it because that's the way Cheryl liked to sleep. Her eyeglasses and a book set on the bedside table next to her bed. And from there, the girls slip out of their clothes to sleep and they get into bed. And between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m., something would happen that has baffled law enforcement for over 30 years. As these three would essentially vanish never to be seen or heard from by their loved ones again. So our first shout out today is our presenting sponsor, Skillshare, the online learning community with instructional videos from industry leaders on just about any topic you can imagine. These are how-to videos focused on completing a specific project rather than just general information. It's practical learning on topics of your choice at your pace. Skillshare, check out the link in the description below. So come 7.30 a.m. the next morning, Janelle calls the Del Mar residents to see if the girls are ready to head to Whitewater. She gets no answer. So knowing it was a late night, she and her boyfriend decide to just drive over and wake them up. When they arrive, it's about 8 a.m., and they see all the girls' cars parked in the circle drive in front of the home. So they walk up to the front door and knock. No response. Looking down, they notice glass on the porch that had come from the porch light cover that had somehow fallen off and broken. Peering inside, they can see the lights are on and assume the girls have simply overslept. A quick turn of the doorknob reveals that the front door is unlocked, and so they go inside. They call out, but hear nothing in response. Most of the lights are on, and they can hear Levitt's TV in her bedroom. As they look around, they see Cheryl's bed is messed and unmade, and they see Susie's bed where the blanket was pulled back, but otherwise looked undisturbed, and Stacy's clothes lay on the floor by the bed but no girls. And then they noticed the oddest thing in the house. All three ladies' purses were piled together in a heap. And so the possibility that the ladies maybe had gone to breakfast flashed in their minds, but it was odd because all three cars were parked outside and all three of their purses were still inside the home. The only life in the residence was the family dog, Cinnamon, a Yorkshire Terrier who is acting strangely, whining and jittery and running from room to room. And then the phone rings, loud, piercing the silence. Janelle answers it, assuming it's the girl's. Instead, it's a man's voice saying something that is so sexually explicit, it's not fit to print. She slams the phone down. The man calls back, repeats the same pornographic language, and Janelle hangs up again. The whole scene was eerie indeed. And so Janelle and her boyfriend leave the residence, not knowing where the girls went. Around 10.30 a.m., Janice McCall, Stacy's mom, having not heard from her daughter, calls Janelle's residence in Battlefield only to learn that the girls had not stayed there. Figuring she had just stayed over at Susie's, Janice then calls the Del Mar address. No answer. But not terribly concerned, Janice McCall would go on an afternoon outing to Springfield Lake. Back in town, word spread of the odd scene and friends began to converge that afternoon on the house at Del Mar. Over the next several hours, up to 18 people go in and out of the house. Some would pick up or clean, emptying ashtrays, doing dishes, and even sweeping up the broken glass on the front steps. They all thought that they were helping, but in actuality, they were disturbing the crime scene by moving potential evidence and littering the property with fingerprints. And it wasn't until Janice McCall got back home from the lake outing that she learned that Stacy's car was still in the circle drive on Del Mar and that no one had heard or seen from the girls or Cheryl Levitt. As afternoon faded into evening, Janice McCall began to sense that something was wrong. So Janice heads over to the Levitt residence herself. She knocks on the door. No answer. She steps inside and finds what others had. The beds are messed, a stack of purses nearby. So she checks Stacy's purse. Her keys, her ID, her wallet, and money, all still in there. Her makeup, still in there. And her migraine medication, which she would never go anywhere without, was still in her purse. Walking back to the living room, she sees a little light blinking on the answering machine, and she hits the playback button. It's another sexually explicit message, this time on the machine. In a fit of disgust, Janice hits the delete button, never dreaming that could be a key piece of evidence. Concerned, Janice picks up the phone and calls the police. It's 9 p.m. She reports what she has observed, but given the fact that there was really no sign of a struggle and everything appeared to be in place, the police are reluctant to do anything immediately. However, tension and anxiety would continue to build throughout the night, and by 2.50 a.m. on June 8th, A missing person report number 920169 is filed. This would be the first of what would become thousands of reports prepared about these three missing women. Law enforcement then stretches the crime tape around the home and starts to examine it as a crime scene. The first thing that law enforcement sees is three cars in the driveway three sets of keys in the house, three purses in a cluster on the steps to Susie's bedroom, all in stark contrast to what they did not see. And that was three women. Then they examined the contents of all the purses, the wallet, the money, IDs, all in there, and nothing apparently missing. They also found Cheryl and Susie's cigarettes, as well as Stacy's headache medication and all of her makeup in her purse. All of these are items that these ladies would have taken with them had they left voluntarily. Interestingly, they would also learn that Susie's car was not parked where she usually left it, which caused law enforcement to speculate that possibly another vehicle was already in her spot when they had arrived home that evening. And they also noted that the blinds were out of place, suggesting that someone maybe was peering out the window. Although, with all the visitors to the house, they couldn't determine precisely when that occurred. And so, the thoughts of law enforcement went to a home invasion, maybe a burglary. But there were no signs of forced entry, no signs of a theft, no signs of a struggle, except for maybe the broken light cover on the porch light. Nothing was ransacked or stolen, there was no money missing. And Levitt even had a $900 deposit on hand that she was planning to take to the bank. Stymied by the crime itself, law enforcement soon began questioning neighbors and asking the public for any information it had on the missing women. In response, several witnesses would report a late 60s Dodge van in and around the Levitt home on the day of the disappearance. And although the color would vary and was disputed, one tipster specifically reported spotting a green van a few blocks away between 6:30 a.m. And 7 a.m., the witness reported overhearing a male voice speaking threateningly to a female driver matching Susie's description. Police would then actually purchase this van similar to the one at issue and place it out in front of the police station during the investigation. From there, the police began questioning anybody and everybody that had contact with these girls in the days before they vanished. And it was a massive list of students, faculty, staff, neighbors, and partygoers. They had literally been seen by over a thousand people in the 24 hours preceding their disappearance. But other than placing the girls at various locations throughout the evening, they received little information to go on as to a motive or potential suspects. From there, law enforcement relied on their training and criminal statistics. Those statistics tell us that 90% of all homicides are committed by men. That's a fact that was recently confirmed by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, which did a global study on homicides in 2020. Now, 80% of the victims of homicide are also male, but in the 20% of cases where women are murdered, they found that 58% of the time are killed by their past or present intimate partner a family member, or a friend. What that means is that about two out of every three times that a woman is murdered, it's one of the men in their lives. So law enforcement turned its attention to these fellas. The initial persons of interest would include Cheryl Levitt's two ex-husbands and her estranged son. So Brent Streeter, her first ex-husband, who was the father of Susie and Bart, was questioned but they had divorced in the 70s and it seemed too big a stretch that he would do something like this so many years later and to his own daughter, nonetheless. So he was discounted early on. Dawn Levitt, her second ex-husband and with whom she did have a nasty split divorcing in 1989, was also questioned. However, he had a solid alibi and was also quickly marked off the list. Bart Streeter, Cheryl's son and Susie's brother. Now, he was estranged from the girls and not on speaking terms, and he pointedly was not invited to Susie's graduation. And being family, he was also someone who might have been able to enter the home without suspicion or force. He also had a prior brush with the law. However, in the end, he had a solid alibi and passed a polygraph test to boot. Now, neither Susie nor Stacy were married, being in high school, and neither had a boyfriend at the time of graduation. But Susie did have a prior relationship with a rough character, Dustin Reckla, an ex-boyfriend who had a checkered past. He had connections with the Galloping Goose Motorcycle Club, an infamous biker gang familiar with both violence and crime during this time period. He was also a known drug user and had recently been arrested for grave robbing, which I didn't even know was a thing anymore. Anyway, as the story goes, Reckla had taken a hit of acid and decided to break into a Springfield mausoleum where he and somebody stole $30 worth of gold tooth fillings from a skull. Interestingly, in February of 1992, Cheryl Levitt had given a statement to investigators regarding Reckless' potential use of her car in the grave robbery. Some had argued that Cheryl's willingness to cooperate with the authorities might have sparked a retaliation by the men. However, in reality, what happened was that the three men involved would each snitch on each other, and in doing so would actually confirm that Cheryl's car was not used in the robbery. In the end, all three got probation for vandalism and nobody went to prison, so it's hardly a result worthy of kidnapping and murder. And to further the point, Rekla would take and pass a lie detector test wherein he denied any involvement in the disappearances. But the journey down the Susie boyfriend rabbit hole was not in vain because a theory emerged that maybe someone associated with the motorcycle gang had noticed Susie while she was running with Dustin's crowd and it led to something a little more sinister. So it was at this point that the focus of the investigation shifted away from family members and intimate partners to the big three, as I will call them, three hardened criminals in the area known for having a penchant for assaulting young women. Let's start with Steve Garrison. An acquaintance of Reckla and a member of the motorcycle gang, Garrison would be arrested for the violent assault of a female student in 1993 and be sentenced to 40 years in prison in conjunction with working out a plea deal in that case, he offered up information about the missing Springfield women. Garrison would say that he overheard someone at a party confessing to the murder, and then he offered details that were both accurate and not within the realm of public knowledge. In fact, his statements led police to two locations where he said they would find the bodies and the green van. So on August 28th, of 1993, police searched the locations in Webster County, the county just to the east of where the girls were kidnapped. One of the locations was a hog farm and without providing so much detail that this video gets demonetized, if you've watched any of my drug cartel videos, you know that pigs are known to eat people and their bones. So it's a good location to dispose of evidence. And one of the locations searched had been owned by a fella later convicted of murder. So these leads were promising. Anyway, investigators combed the sites and reportedly did not find the women. However, exactly what the police did find is unknown because it's protected to this day by a gag order. That being said, the rumor has it that cadaver dogs were brought in and identified two suspicious areas. Authorities then began to dig with heavy equipment, and after a few minutes, they would unearth human remains. And there was some immediate optimism that this might be the missing women. Unfortunately, upon examination by experts, it was determined that the human remains were too old to possibly be the missing women. Again, that is just a rumor. Exactly what the police found is unknown and protected by the gag order. Up next is Gerald Carnahan, another acquaintance of Rekla and Garrison through the Motorcycle Club. Now, Gerald Carnahan was a businessman who worked for his father's aluminum foundry in Nixa, Missouri, another suburb of Springfield. Carnahan first came to widespread local attention in 1985 when a young woman from Nixon named Jackie Johns, was beaten to death, assaulted, and dumped into Springfield Lake, where her naked body was discovered four days later. Carnahan was named as a suspect and accused of lying to the grand jury about his prior relationship with the young lady, as well as his whereabouts that evening. Police had also named Carnahan as a suspect in another homicide, the 1987 death of Debbie Sue Lewis. Her case was eerily similar to that of Jackie John's. Both women had vanished from their cars on U.S. Highway 160. Both had their purse and keys left in the vehicle, and the driver's door left ajar. Lewis's remains were discovered months later in extreme southwestern Missouri. Then, in the spring of 1993, less than a year after the three women in this video vanished from the house on Del Mar, Carnahan was arrested for trying to kidnap a young woman from a sidewalk near Ingram Mill Road in Springfield. He would actually be convicted of that crime and serve two years in prison. So, because of his history, Springfield detectives investigated Carnahan. Now, witnesses would say he was in the area at the time, but Carnahan would state that he was working at his father's plant in Shanghai, China, when the girls went missing and denied any involvement in the crime. But, of course, Carnahan had denied any involvement in regard to Jackie Johns as well. And while it would take over 20 years for that cold case to be solved, Carnahan would ultimately be convicted for the Johns killing and be sentenced to two life sentences after DNA evidence linked him to the crime. And we have an entire video dedicated to the Jackie Johns case on this channel if you are interested. Next up in the big three was Robert Craig Cox. Originally from Springfield, Missouri, he would join the army and become a ranger, so he was well-trained in the use of firearms and weapons and hand-to-hand combat. In 1978, Robert Craig Cox would find himself in Orlando, Florida, and be accused of following a young lady, a 19-year-old Sharon Zellers, who was headed home after her shift at Disney World. Sharon would. Never make it to her house that evening. Her car was found four days later in an orange grove with her body being discovered stuffed into a manhole at a sewage pumping station about 340 feet away from the Days Inn hotel where Cox was staying. Cox would be questioned regarding the incident after he returned to his hotel covered in what he said was his own blood. His hotel room would be scoured, but he was not arrested and the case went cold for almost a decade. From there, Cox found himself in California, where he would stalk and kidnap a woman, Kathleen Boyce, at knife point in August of 1985. She would be able to fight him off, but suffered serious injuries to her hands and arms from the knife wounds. And in December of that same year, he would kidnap Gidget Wickham at gunpoint from an airport parking lot. He instructed her to drive into the mountains while he buried a gun into her side. She, too, would miraculously escape when they made a stop. So Cox would ultimately be convicted and receive a nine-year sentence in California for kidnapping these two young women. And when he was finally released from prison in California, he was taken back to Florida to stand trial for the kidnapping and murder of Sharon Zellers. At trial, the coroner would state that she was beaten to death with a blunt object. And while DNA wasn't a thing back then, blood type was. And Cox and Zeller's, they had different blood types. Interestingly, in Zeller's car, law enforcement would find Cox's blood type. And in Cox's hotel room, they would find Zeller's blood type. At trial, the jury would also see a boot print from the area where the body was discovered that was identical to the military boots Cox was wearing that night. Law enforcement would also testify that they found Cox's hair on the passenger seat of Zeller's car. And although it took a decade, in 1988, Cox would be convicted by the jury and sentenced to death for the abduction and murder of Zeller. However, In 1990, in an absolutely shocking decision, the Florida Supreme Court would overturn the conviction and Cox would be released from death row. That didn't happen very often. An outraged juror would write a letter to the Supreme Court wherein she stated, quote, Robert Cox is a killer and he will kill again because you have provided him that opportunity, end quote. So, Following his release from death row, Robert Craig Cox returned to his childhood home, Springfield, Missouri, where he started working at Reliable Chevrolet. And that's where he befriended a man, Stu McCall. Yep, that's right, Stacy McCall's dad. So he knew the family and had seen Stacy at his father's place of employment. And he was familiar with Susie through her boyfriend's ties to the motorcycle gang. And so, due to his criminal past and obvious connection to these girls, police questioned him about the three missing women in 1992. He would deny any involvement, but given the information the police had, he was definitely a primary suspect. And so Cox got out of Dodge. He left town and headed south. But his lawlessness would follow him, and in 1995, Cox would be arrested for holding a gun to the head of a child he had taken hostage during a robbery in Texas. He would be convicted of that offense and sentenced to life in prison where he remains today. And from prison, he would toy with the police for years saying that he knew the girls were dead and he knew where they were buried. However, he would never reveal any particulars or the location. When he was asked directly by the Springfield News Leader, a newspaper in Springfield, Missouri, in March of 1996, if he abducted the women, Cox said, quote, that's a frivolous question. Obviously, I'm going to say no, end quote. And from there, without any physical evidence to tie any of these three men to the crime, the case went cold. So the second shout out is to video sponsor Liquid IV, the electrolyte drink mix that delivers hydration to your cells faster than just drinking water alone. This hydration and energy multiplier is way better than Gatorade. Make your water work harder. Give it a try. The link to order is in the description below this video. In December of 1992, the story of the missing women was aired on America's Most Wanted, and an unknown person called the show with key facts from the case that police would later state were not public knowledge. The caller then disconnected when the show attempted to patch them through to police, and they never called back but police must have believed they had important information because they took the time to trace the phone call, which led them to a store in Louisiana, but they were never able to specifically identify the caller. So then an FBI profiler was called in to examine the evidence. The profiler would also not rule out that it could have been a random act of violence, stating that the attacker could have spotted Susie and Stacy driving around in their red cars, Susie leading the way with her personalized license plate sweeter, and then just followed them to the house on Del Mar. But that got police re-examining accounts that there was a transient man spotted in the area by several people in the days preceding the disappearance. He was described as white male, mid-30s, 150 pounds, shoulder-length brown hair with a full beard. But the stranger danger theory ultimately didn't seem to fit the facts namely because of the lack of any signs of a struggle, nothing was stolen, and three women were kidnapped. It just seemed like too tall a task for a homeless guy to acquire a van and then nab three grown women with no signs of a struggle. So police were basically at a dead end again on potential suspects without a body to glean evidence from, which begged the question, where were these women? and rumors have swirled about that topic for at least 30 years as to where these women could be. The kidnapped for sex trafficking and transported out of the country theory has gained popularity in recent history as more light has been shed on that practice, but investigators found no evidence of any tie to any sex trafficking ring by any party that was investigated. What they did have was a couple of suspects who like to kidnap, abuse, murder, and then attempt to hide the bodies of their victims. So that is the most logical and prevalent theory. And if these ladies were hidden, they can be found in theory. So, what are those theories? Well, the most popular location theory is the Cox parking garage, that the ladies were buried under the parking garage at Cox South Hospital, a hospital in southern Springfield, Missouri. And if you are a local, you have most definitely heard this theory. First and foremost, that theory is believed by no one in law enforcement that has investigated this case. Second, This theory was started by a psychic who claimed that she could communicate with Susie's dog. Yeah, cinnamon. So there's that. And the theory really didn't gain any traction at all until 2007, when crime reporter Kathy Baird investigated the claim. So Baird claimed that she used ground-penetrating radar and identified three anomalies, the correct size and shape for the three missing women. The validity of these claims was then scrutinized by experts who said, you may have found three lumps under there, but there are all kinds of things down there. Large boulders, trees, tree stumps, and other debris that could all resemble the size and shape of a human body. And beyond that, the biggest problem with that claim is that these girls were abducted in June of 1992. Excavation and construction on the parking garage didn't even begin until September of 1993, 15 months later. So the likelihood that their abductors waited 15 months to bring the women's remains to the excavation site prior to the concrete being poured seems unlikely. Reporter Kathy Baird would also claim to know who was involved in the abduction, but refused to disclose the information due to threats on her life ultimately both she and the psychic got painted into a corner with questions they couldn't answer so they clammed up refusing to talk further about the case and basically faded into the abyss but the parking garage story lives on in the minds of many a local in southwest missouri and for what it's worth police did investigate this theory And as spokesperson Lisa Cox diplomatically stated, quote, law enforcement could not substantiate these claims, end quote. Others think that they were buried in the Mark Twain National Forest. And while it has been searched, it consists of over 3 million acres. It makes up over 10% of all forested land in Missouri. So it's not really feasible to search the entire forest. Could they be in there? Sure, I mean, there are endless theories out there as to where they could be. But the one theory that makes the most sense to me, if I had to go with one theory and one theory only as to what happened to these girls, this is what it would be. And no, this is my opinion only. I have absolutely no facts to support this theory, so take it with a grain of salt. But when I look at this case, there is plenty of precedence that Robert Cox likes to kidnap and or murder young women. He served prison time for kidnapping two women in California, and he was convicted, albeit overturned, for killing a young woman in Florida. It's also apparent that his method of operation involves having his victims drive while he holds them at gunpoint or knife point. Remember the hair that was found in the Florida woman's passenger seat? And we know he forced the woman in California to drive into the mountains at gunpoint. In the Springfield case, recall that witnesses said they saw someone who looked like Stacy driving the green van, and they also heard a threatening voice. That is Cox's M.O. He was also in Springfield at the time, and he knew Stacy McCall and her family. So he fits the mold perfectly. Coincidentally, the McCall family openly states that they firmly believe that Cox is the man that kidnapped and murdered these three women. Now, law enforcement has not publicly made that claim. But remember, Cox has toyed with them and the media for years about this case. And so if Cox is the probable abductor, according to this theory, what happened to the bodies? Well, I think that's where he had some help. Remember his acquaintance, Gerald Carnahan? So what was the mistake that both Cox and Carnahan had made with their prior kidnappings? Well, law enforcement discovered the bodies. For Cox, it was Zellers in the manhole in Florida. For Carnahan, it was Jackie Johns in Lake Springfield. So they needed to develop a plan to permanently dispose of the evidence of their crimes. And sometimes the answer is right under the tip of your nose. Remember that Gerald Carnahan worked for his father's company, Enixa. It was and is a foundry that makes aluminum pedestals for boat seats and tables. So it's an aluminum foundry that melts aluminum and pours it into forms. They liquefy metal. The furnaces at that foundry burn at about 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 500 degrees hotter than you need to cremate a body. And so whether Carnahan was in Springfield or in Shanghai, he could have provided Cox with access to the foundry. And if these ladies' bodies were placed into one of those furnaces at the foundry, no trace of them would remain. They would be gone forever. So is that what happened to them? Well, who knows? but it is as logical a theory as I have come across in researching this video. But again, that is simply an opinion. There are no actual facts to support any of it. And remember, no one has been charged in connection with the disappearance of these women. That being said, there are several people who think that authorities should just charge Robert Cox with the murders and see what happens. They know that he kidnaps and murders young women, and what is known about the abduction style that he uses seems to fit this case. He was in Springfield at the time, and he knew the McCalls. Those reasons alone should be enough to convince a jury, albeit circumstantially, of his guilt, right? Well, no. And there's three reasons why. Number one, they have no body. To prove a murder, you have to prove the victim is actually dead, which usually requires a body. Now, there are exceptions where there is testimony or evidence to explain the absence of the body. Like the witness saw the victim killed and then they dumped the body at sea or whatever. In this case, authorities have neither. They have no body and they have no explanation for its absence. They can prove that the women are missing, but they can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the women are actually dead. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that the defendant's prior convictions would never be heard by the jury. And this is a complicated evidentiary rule, but prior convictions are only relevant to impeach a witness's credibility if they testify. If they don't testify, which the defendant has the constitutional right not to do, that evidence is not admissible. That being so, Cox would never testify in a million years. So any jury would never know that Robert Cox had so much as a prior traffic ticket, more or less that he was a kidnapper or suspected murderer. Which leads to reason number three, double jeopardy. If you charge somebody and you take the case to trial and lose, it's over. You can't try them again for the same crime that violates the Constitution. You only get one strike, so you don't want to swing and miss. However, since there's no statute of limitations on murder, Rather than try to convince a jury of the murder of three women they can't prove are dead by a guy that they can't prove did it, they simply wait. They wait for potential evidence to surface. Will that ever happen? Who knows? What form will it take? Again, who knows? But at this point, it will probably be a deathbed confession from someone that was involved. So to wrap up this video, police report that since the disappearance, they have received more than 5,200 leads from 21 different states. And despite the thousands of tips that have come in, police have never made an arrest. In 1997, Susie and Cheryl Levitt were legally declared dead, In 2001, the case was reopened, triggering a surge of new searches and tips, and police did locate parts of a green vehicle in Cassville, Missouri in April of 2003 after two tipsters reported the women were buried in a van on the property. Ultimately, they did not find any human remains and could not confirm whether the vehicle parts discovered had any connection to the case. In two thousand eight, Janice McCall would state, there are actually two fears, quote, number one, that we will find Stacy and her remains, and number two, that we won't find Stacy and her remains. Of significance is that a granite bench was erected in the Victims Memorial Garden of Phelps Grove Park in Springfield, Missouri, in honor of the missing women and other victims of violent crime. The Springfield Three continue to be considered missing, and the case remains open, albeit a cold case in police records. If you have any information, please call the number on the screen. That's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, hit that like button for me. If you got a question, you got a comment, put it in the comment section below. And if you haven't subscribed, smash that subscribe button. I appreciate it very much. My name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up.